This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with epidemiologist Professor Nancy Baxter. Nancy joined me to discuss the state of the COVID-19 pandemic. We also discuss other viruses of concern this winter, including influenza. Nancy explains the simple things that we can do to protect each other and the health system, which is currently under extreme strain. She also talks about the concerningly large number of people suffering from long COVID. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome onto the program Professor Nancy Baxter, who is head of the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Nancy is a clinical epidemiologist. She also is a qualified general surgeon, which is also another impressive string to her bow, and a health services researcher. And we are going to be discussing the epidemiological picture of COVID-19 at the moment in the context of winter, as well as the rising number of deaths that we're seeing and a number of other circulating respiratory viruses, including the flu, which is causing uh, a huge concern for doctors and emergency physicians at the moment. So there's a whole range of issues, related issues going on. We're going to talk about those as well as vaccination for the flu and COVID, as well as those really sensible mitigations that we should all be doing to minimise transmission so that we can reduce the number of times people are becoming infected and reinfected as well as potentially getting long COVID or even dying. So I welcome Dr. Nancy Baxter now. Hi there, Nancy, and thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for inviting me and good morning. It's great to have you on the program. And uh, I've certainly really valued your contributions throughout the pandemic. Uh, You've been one of those very clear, measured people who speaks the truth and isn't afraid to say, you know, what the real situation is, as well as what might be at the moment politically unpalatable, which is minimising transmission of COVID-19. And I'm kind of surprised to be saying that, seeing as I thought it wasn't a controversial thing, especially in the arena of public health. I wondered, could you comment at the moment on transmission rates, especially because we don't really have an accurate picture given testing. But at the moment, we're hearing anecdotal reports from uh, respiratory physicians, for example, I've seen saying, you know, people are testing positive on day five or six on a rapid antigen test. Meanwhile, they've already had symptoms for five days, testing negative. A lot of people not going out and getting PCR tests. They're also less available. You know, what is the true picture of COVID-19 transmission if we don't have reliable testing and people taking up that testing? Well, you know, I I think you bring up a a really important point. Um, You know, Australia has had really world-class testing um, throughout the pandemic. So we've had a better understanding in Australia of where we're at than than most countries uh, around the world. Um, But, you know, as with everywhere, with the high numbers of cases with Omicron, there, there have been challenges to testing. And now with the kind of overall decreased salience of COVID-19, the decreased kind of resonance with the population, I guess, and leadership being having less emphasis on COVID-19, despite the fact that it's everywhere. Um, you know, we're seeing decreases in testing, both in terms of PCR, but also in rapid antigen testing and importantly, reporting of rapid antigen testing. And I'll just give an example. You know, you see New South Wales um, yesterday had less than 5,000 cases, but still persistently has about 1,300 people in hospital. So it makes you think that now, um, unless, you know, 
completely different people are getting COVID, you know, sicker and older people getting COVID leading to hospitalizations, it makes you think that there's just less reporting. So you're having the same amount of serious disease, but less numbers of cases. So it, there's a disconnect there that makes you think we're really uh, underreporting the cases. And that's important because if you don't know that you have COVID or you don't test for COVID and you don't do the steps that you need to take if you're positive for COVID, that is isolate yourself and not kind of allow yourself to transmit it more, um, then it's just going to kind of continue to fuel the outbreak that we have and lead to more cases and more people having COVID, getting serious consequences from COVID and long COVID than we need to have. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. And I noticed that we also changed our close contact rules for isolation as well, so that people who happen to, you know, say their husband gets COVID, they are pretty sure they're going to get it themselves and they are essentially allowed to go to work um, having been a close contact with Omicron being so transmissible, likely getting it and then potentially spreading it into their workplace and to their contacts. I know anecdotally, a friend of mine decided to voluntarily stay at home and isolate anyway because she was sure that she would eventually get it. She did actually turn positive and she was glad that she'd actually protected her colleagues and those around her. But that's a very significant thing for an individual to have to take on against the system that we've created here, which seems to be quite minimal in terms of providing structures and rules to minimise transmission. Yeah, and even information and leadership. Mm. Um, so, you know, even if you don't have mandates and requirements, um, you can you can lead uh, and help people do what from a public health perspective is the right thing. You see all the photographs of politicians in groups, none of them are wearing masks. I mean, that sends a strong signal to people about what is important and what is necessary. But the household context, it's a great, it's a great point. You know, we know with Omicron being extremely transmissible that your risk of developing Omicron if someone in your household has it uh, is about 50%, at least 50%. And so if we're allowing those people to go back to work, uh, it means that we should be taking extreme precautions, you know? So the workplaces that have people who are household contacts likely should all be masked, both in terms of protecting other people from, you know, the wearer. So like decreasing the amount of COVID that in the air that the person who's a high risk contact uh, is putting into the air, but also protecting people from inhaling that. So everyone wearing um, uh, masks in that workplace. Of course, we all know that there are no masks in the workplace. And it's really actually, as, as someone who tries to wear a mask, you know, I'm not perfect, but tries to wear a mask, uh, it's really difficult. It's really difficult to, to, to be swimming upstream all the time when no one in the workplace, no one in crowds are wearing masks. It's difficult to be the only one. I'm kind of better, better able to do that than most because I'm the lady on TV that lectures you. Um, <laughs> But, um, but, you know, it's, it's really, it's challenging even for me. So I can imagine, you know, someone going into the workplace, trying to do the right thing and really getting feedback that, that it's not, not kind of socially okay to be wearing a mask. Um, but that is what people who are household contacts should be doing because, you know, they have a really high risk of becoming positive. And as we know, you know, you, you can become infectious and, and infect other people before you even get symptoms. Um, so, uh, so it's a challenge. And, and what we saw in, in, in WA is when they relaxed household uh, restrictions on household contacts and relaxed, relaxed masking at the same time, they almost doubled their numbers of COVID-19. So clear impact of, of what we're doing from 
uh, requirement and um, mandate perspective and what has happened in terms of transmission. It's a it's cause and effect. Yeah. Well, we were told throughout the pandemic just how easy it is to wear a mask in the sense that it's a small imposition with a big return. It's something that can make a huge difference if we all wear a mask. Because, it, you know, obviously, if you've got double mask, you've got one person and another person both wearing masks, that protection is huge compared with just one person or even you yourself, Nancy, being the lone person. You know, it is pretty tough if there's very little ventilation or air purification going on and we're in winter at the moment. You point out about peer pressure. It's something that has come up for a lot of parents I've seen as well, saying that their children have felt really pressured by their peers and also their teachers to remove their masks for school photos, for, you know, just sitting in class at any point, for going outside if they still wanted to wear their mask. There's this sense that people who perhaps are more at risk at school or or the kids know that they have a family member at home who's at risk, they're putting themselves out there and doing something that they choose to do, but they're getting all this pressure. Don't do that. What kind of advice would you have to parents who whose kids are choosing to wear masks at school but are feeling that pressure? Well, that is a huge challenge. Um, and I think part of it is because everyone wants to forget the pandemic. Everyone wants to say the pandemic's over and we're moving forward uh, and our future is is going to be like 2019 was. Uh, and who wouldn't want to get rid of masks if we can, you know, if, if the pandemic is over? And that's certainly the message that's being sent to us. I think there was also a lot of um, thinking out there now in retrospect, a bit magical thinking that, you know, you'd get COVID once and then you'd be done. So you're vaccinated, you get COVID once, you're done. You're never going to get COVID again. But as we're all learning from either our own experience or our friend's experience or from what we, you know, read in the paper, um, people are getting COVID again and again. Um, and so unless we want to get COVID as frequently as the common cold with far greater implications, ramifications, long-term effects than the common cold, we need to be doing more than we're doing to reduce transmission. And kids in school, yeah, it, it's really tough because, uh, you know, I, I recently heard from a friend that her child was wearing uh, a mask on the bus. She got a call from the teacher wondering if her daughter was having some problems with anxiety around COVID because she was, you know, insisting on wearing a mask on the bus. She wasn't insisting on wearing a mask in school just because, you know, she didn't want to essentially be, um, you know, singled out in a pariah in her classroom, but she wanted to wear it on the bus and the teacher was concerned about that. So, you know, I do think that we need a whole lot of education. It needs to start kind of at the top in terms of teachers kind of understanding that mask wearing actually is a reasonable thing for people to do and children shouldn't have to kind of tell you their whole sore story about what their concerns are in terms of, you know, potentially having someone who's immunocompromised in their family or just their own personal concerns. Mm. Uh, they shouldn't have to kind of bare their souls to be able to wear a mask if that's what they want. And I think that over the next few years, we will adapt and we will accept mask wearing is more normal. And, and there's just, just a period now where there's kind of this reaction to mask wearing as if kind of uh, you're you're just bringing the pandemic back into our lives and we don't don't want that to be back into our lives and that's that's just we've got to get over that because if we don't we're just kind of going to be allowing more transmission to happen than needs to happen and if more transmission happens than needs to happen 
we're going to have more sick people, more people that are off work, so it's going to affect the economy, more people dying of COVID, and importantly, more long COVID, which is going to kind of result in just more disability in, in society than we need to. We are going to be sicker as a society than we need to be. Yeah, and I want to pick up on long COVID in a minute, but can I um, just jump in on mask wearing, I guess, and point out that healthcare workers have been wearing masks, N95 masks, for 12-hour shifts throughout the entire pandemic, and I know that pretty much all of them are still wearing them even by choice. So, you know, this isn't a big deal. Um, and I certainly have been wearing mine throughout the entire pandemic anyway. But yeah, it is something that if you saw it role modelled by politicians and the people who are out there talking about it, it would certainly send a, a better message. And it's something that I guess I hoped that perhaps National Cabinet might consider if things got worse in midwinter, whether indoor mask wearing might be reintroduced, even if for a, a brief period. Do you think that that might be a potential solution if come the end of June and we're seeing flu continue to skyrocket, the subvariants of COVID that are more transmissible pick up? Do you think that that might be a potential option to minimise transmission? Yeah, well, I think that what would be the most reasonable thing for our leaders to do is to be realistic with people about what's happening with COVID, how we actually can't predict what's going to happen with COVID in the near future. We can hope that what's going to happen is over time, you know, there'll be less and less peaks of COVID because more and more people will have these layers of immunity to COVID. So there'll be less of an impact of COVID on our lives over time and that that'll happen in a very short period of time. So we can hope for that. Uh, but right now we're planning for that. And, and that's problematic, right? We're hoping for the best and planning for the best. And what we need to do is at least have some plan for something other than the best to happen. And that's what we're seeing right now, actually, is, is that this is worse than what we had planned for. So, you know, what I think leaders need to do is to need to be very clear about the parameters uh, at which time, you know, to be clear that masks are recommended. And if masks are recommended, that means our leaders should be using them more. That's number one. And then they should be very upfront about when masks will be reintroduced as required, as mandatory, because we've seen that mandatory requirements of masks have a massive impact on use of masks. And so there may be times in the future, and this winter may well be one, when the best thing for our healthcare system, the best thing for us as a society is to mandate masks again. And so I think our leaders need to be very clear about that. I'm quite concerned that the politics being what they are, that that, that is not something that at least our local politicians are going to be able to do. But that is surely what is needed. Absolutely. And if we put things into a bit of perspective, one of the metrics that is undeniable although Scott Morrison tried to undermine it during the election campaign, were the death statistics of people dying from COVID-19. He was trying to suggest that people were really not dying from COVID-19, that it wasn't the main factor in their death. This was debunked by people who know how the statistics are actually defined by the ABS and by doctors who have to sign the death certificates. But it is something that was concerning to me to see this undermining of the severity of the, the number of deaths we're seeing. To give listeners an idea, 
for June, so in the last six days, as of yesterday, we've seen 234 deaths in Australia. And we've also seen for the whole month of May, just under 1,300 deaths in Australia. So if we're thinking about that level of death in Australia, that is much more than the flu. It's throughout the year. It's not seasonal. And um, we're on track to see a huge number at the end of the year. What are your reflections on the death statistics as they stand in relation to the rest of the world and what you think potentially Australians' expectations are of death? Well, I I would say, first of all, in terms of death from COVID, Australia has really been spared a lot of what many other countries around the globe have suffered. And that is because of, you know, the willingness of Australians to abide by a lot of very difficult and severe restrictions um, to be able to keep COVID largely out for two years while we got everyone vaccinated. So so kudos to all Australians for making that happen. But, you know, I do think that we are resting on our laurels in terms of our past performance, and our past performance is clearly not going to predict our future performance because everything changed with Omicron and with loosening of all restrictions. I mean, we essentially have no restrictions uh, right now in terms of transmission other than requiring people to isolate if they have COVID. So, you know, we should we should kind of look at our performance in terms of mortality from kind of the start of this year as very separate and um, uh, uh, isolated from our, our our performance before that. And what I would say is right now we could be performing much better. We're still doing better than some other countries because we have such a high vaccination rate, again, because of uh, the Australian people really going out and getting there and getting vaccinated. But uh, but it could be lower, and it's not it's not certainly the best performance anywhere in terms of mortality. And, um, you know, the, this kind of argument that, that people are dying with and not of COVID, you know, that has been debunked, both in terms of, as you said, how mortality is recorded by physicians on death certificates. So, you know, the underlying cause of death has been COVID in most of these cases of people dying with COVID. They have died of COVID. And as you also said, the Australian Bureau of Statistics looks at something called the expected number of people dying in a given time period and looks at whether the rates are over expected. This isn't something new. This is something that the Australian Bureau of Statistics has always done. And what they found is for January and February, which are the most recent dates available, the actual observed deaths, the number of deaths we had overall, not just from COVID overall, was 20% higher than would be expected in a usual year. Uh, And that's because of COVID. So COVID now has become one of the leading deaths of Australians. So this is not something you can explain away by saying they're dying with COVID. You know, 20% more deaths in Australia during this time of COVID. So it's because of COVID. Then there's the argument that these are old people. So recently I saw in the paper, a prominent physician saying that, you know, the analogy of, uh, you know, uh, this being similar to a plane crashing uh, and people dying in a plane crash every two or three days, the number of people dying in Australia, we shouldn't make that analogy because in a plane, you have people of a range of ages, including babies and young people, whereas these are all older people or people with comorbid conditions. You know, I, I think that is just a horrific way to think about this because, you know, if we had a, a group of retirees in a plane and the plane crashed, wouldn't we still care? You know, so so I think yeah. that these are generally older people or people who are sick, but honestly, those are Australians too. Those are our loved ones. Those those are sometimes us. Uh, and so we, we should definitely 
care. The other thing is it's not just death from COVID. It's kind of the overwhelming of our healthcare system as well as long COVID. So, so I do think this trying to kind of say we don't need to worry about it because the people who are dying are older and maybe some of them, you know, COVID is just kind of a, uh, a passenger and not the cause of the death. I just think that that, that is, is unhelpful. And at, at the best you can say about that, it's unhelpful. And the worst you can say is that it's brazenly political at, and is actually harmful. Very true. And when we did have more transparency from some of the state health authorities, especially when they were tweeting out the daily figures and giving us an idea of the people who were dying with their age, uh, especially in New South Wales, how many vaccinations they'd had. We know those statistics uh, when they were provided. We saw a number of people who had had their booster doses who might have even been eligible for a fourth dose because they were immunocompromised also dying from COVID. So I think it's important to say that vaccines are vital and they work, but a lot of the people might also assume, well, these people are just people who chose not to be vaccinated. Yeah, well, you know, I think that the fact that the um, governments are not publishing that data is for several reasons. One, because almost everybody is vaccinated and many of the older folks are boosted as well. You know, a, a, a significant percentage of people dying of COVID have been vaccinated. Now, when you look at it based on the proportions, you're, you're much less likely to die of COVID if you've been vaccinated and less likely to die again if you've been boosted. But because of the fact that, you know, a number of people are dying who've had the vaccine and booster, anti-vaxxers are actually using that as information to support their anti-vaxxer stance to say that this proves that vaccines don't work. So I think that's part of why governments aren't focusing on that anymore is because it's kind of fueling this misinformation that anti-vaxxers are putting out there to support their position. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I can kind of understand where they're coming from there. But yes, indeed, vaccines are not perfect. And you know, I, I think most people in government did not try to present them as perfect. But uh, when we had such you know, such great vaccines, particularly with the mRNA vaccines, so so effective. I think we were hoping that that they would be the the solution, the entire solution to to COVID. Um, but now, sadly, it's clear they're not. Both in terms of folks dying from COVID, but also importantly from long COVID. Yeah, and in terms of vaccination, to close out that loop. I noted that with the booster doses, or we should probably call them third doses now because they're recommended for everyone to get their third dose. Could you explain to people who may be holding out, there is one third of eligible adults who have not yet had their third dose, why it's so vital to get it with Omicron circulating? Why is that third dose going to tip you over the line and give you better protection? So I, I think there are a few things. Um, first, you know, there, there are some other vaccines that you need three doses for to get your immunity to, to the level, uh, optimal level from, from vaccines. And I think long-term, COVID's going to be one of those, that the optimal course is three times. We didn't know that at the beginning, but I, I think in the future, we'll be thinking of this as a three-dose vaccine, not a two-dose vaccine. So, that, so that's just putting it out there. I mean, there are some vaccines that are like this, you know, some shots you only need one of, some shots you need three of. COVID is going to be one that even just to get the best immunity you can, you're going to need three. But then you have waning immunity, so decreasing immunity. So we know over time, vaccines 
some vaccines can, uh, the immunity to disease can decrease with time and you need boosters. So, so we've had boosters in the past uh, for vaccines like like tetanus, things like that, you need, you need to have, have them done on a regular basis. And COVID is one of those. Our immunity does wane over time. Fortunately, it doesn't wane that much. It doesn't decrease that much for hospitalization and death, but it decreases a bit. Um, and when you're dealing with Omicron, when you have so many people getting Omicron, even if it decreases just a bit, a small percentage, because so many people are getting it, it means there's a lot more hospitalizations and a lot more deaths. So, um, you know, then it's really important at the population level, at kind of trying to manage our healthcare system level, that we have as many people with this maximum protection as well. Because even if you increase, you know, hospitalization rates by, you know, only 5%, so you you have many, many more people with Omicron, you've protected them largely with vaccination, but some people still end up becoming quite sick. Even if you uh, you increase the number of sick people that need hospitalization by a much smaller percent than the total percentage getting COVID, it still is enough to potentially overwhelm the healthcare system. So if you can mitigate that by getting that booster in, then that is extremely important. Then finally, you know, Omicron isn't COVID 1.0. Part of how Omicron, a large part of, uh, of how Omicron is able to be so much more transmissible is that it is able to evade our immunity, both immunity from having had COVID before and immunity from vaccination. And so, so because of that, it, our vaccines do have a little less protection against hospitalization and serious illness. They still do very well, but they have a little less protection so than, than with COVID 1.0 that the vaccines were designed for. So that means that we really need to make sure that everyone has the maximum immunity, so i.e. has that booster, to be able to really minimize the impact of COVID on our healthcare systems and death from COVID. That's such a great point because we're hearing so many reports of EDs emergency departments being overwhelmed at the moment and people stuck in ED waiting to go up to a ward because there aren't beds available for them. So we're way past capacity. If we think about the subvariants that are becoming a concern and are starting to grow at lower but still concerning levels, we know of the BA4 and BA5 subvariants of Omicron because we've seen wastewater detections of them in some of the eastern metropolitan areas as well as the city of Greater Geelong, more recently being a key area where it's um, had high detections. Is that a concern? At the moment, given that those subvariants seem to have the ability to evade vaccines more than even the earlier subvariants of Omicron. Yeah, so you know we had the original peak of Omicron, which was BA1. So it's the the first first type of Omicron that really really became a, a major global health issue. And then we subsequently had BA2. So that's the cousin of, of the original Omicron, all in the Omicron family. And that's where we saw the more recent kind of peak of cases that, um, you know, about uh, over the past couple of months. Not as high, but definitely enough to really stress the healthcare system and enough to mean a lot of sick people. And so now we're kind of coming, we were coming down from that, um, still with a high number of cases, but coming down from the peak. Uh, and now we we have kind of BA5, 4 and 5 starting to be present in Australia. You know, last I saw about 7% of specimens that have been evaluated in Australia are now BA5. 
And that is likely to mean that there'll be a transmission driver, there'll be a driver of increased transmission in Australia over the winter. We'll have a number of people who have relatively high amounts of immunity from transmission because they've had COVID recently. But when you think of that huge peak of people who had COVID over the Christmas holidays, you know, their immunity has waned from that to the point where they're susceptible to getting this BA5 as well. So, you know, you had people who had, were boosted, people who had um, COVID, you know, the immunity to transmission is waning. So, um, so they're at risk from BA5. So the expectation I have is that we certainly will not have another decline. We will not have a major decline in COVID cases over winter. We're going to have a persistently high amount of COVID cases, and we may even have another peak. I think we, we have to, that remains to be seen. But, you know, certainly what we're going to have is over winter, a persistently high number of cases. We're not going to get down to like a very, very few cases. Uh, and the challenge there is even if the cases are, are not peaking, we have kind of these two respiratory outbreaks at the same time. So we have COVID and we have the flu. We have a healthcare system that's already under um, extreme strain. So we're putting the burden of both, um, you know, high baseline number of cases of COVID and then an outbreak of the flu. And we create a system where it's going to be extraordinarily challenging for um, nurses, physicians, paramedics to actually provide the care that, that should, they should be, be able to provide, as well as our GPs, right? So our GPs, backbone of this system, a lot of people sick from COVID don't require hospitalization. We think about hospitals a lot, but, you know, the GPs are taking care of a lot of people. They're trying to get treatment to people who need it. Remember that we have some effective treatments for people if they're diagnosed with COVID and treatment gets to them within five days. You know, we, we're relying on GPs to do that. We're relying on GPs to help people cope with so-called mild COVID, which can actually make you feel pretty sick, but you don't require hospitalization. We're, we're asking GPs to manage that. We're asking GPs to do a lot in a season where they're already usually pretty overwhelmed. So this is a real tax on the healthcare system right now, and I think we'll continue over the winter. Yeah, and you do mention there the antivirals. I know Paxlovid is one that's been particularly effective. And we've seen healthcare professionals confirm that it's A, quite difficult to get into a GP, especially if you happen to get stuck over the weekend needing to access it, and also that the supplies seem to be really sparse and hard to find in terms of which chemists might have any stock near you, especially if you're living in a regional or rural area. Are you concerned about the access to antivirals and monoclonal antibodies for these people who are more at risk? Do you think that that is a bit of an issue if we're having such high levels of transmission, there surely are quite a number of people eligible. Do you think they're able to access it enough? And is this an area government might intervene? It's hard for me to believe that everyone who could benefit from the antivirals is being offered them. I, I think that's not kind of something that that's possible given the number of in the current system and with the current support. I'm also quite concerned that the delivery that we currently have of antivirals is not being done in an equitable way. We know that this pandemic has been felt inequitably throughout society, that you know, early on, the people that were getting it, the people that were dying of it were people who were essential workers. You know, in addition to our, our health workers, these are people who generally work in lower paying jobs, people who in, in uh, lower socioeconomic status, 
uh, living in larger households, people that have to work. Um, so these are the people that were bearing the brunt of the pandemic before vaccination. And now they're bearing the brunt of the pandemic because of you know challenges with, uh, again, having to go to work, challenges with not being able to adequately access treatments if they meet the high risk criteria. So so it's a big concern of mine that you know we know we have some effective therapy. How are we supporting GPs to get it out there? Like just this, this is new treatment. Uh, it's um, challenging in that people have to be identified very quickly. They have to be started on treatment very quickly. This is an entirely new new approach to COVID. Uh, it's something that we're uh, saying that GPs should do. And there is some support for GPs. It's not like there's no support, but there's just not enough support to make sure this is going to happen for every patient. Yeah. Yeah. I've certainly heard people say that they're eligible, but their GP just said, no, you'll be fine. <laughs> Don't worry, which is kind of concerning as well. So it definitely seems that there's a whole range of areas that could be improved. Let's talk about long COVID because I definitely don't want to miss that. And it's something that I um, I spoke with Brendan Crabb about a little while ago. And, you know, he had expressed his concerns that we're really not discussing or up until this point have not been discussing the impact of long COVID, especially given the numbers of potential long COVID cases based on transmission levels. So if you have a high number of cases, you have an even higher likelihood of a, a number of people getting long COVID. So I wonder if we're seeing reinfections as well, and perhaps people getting infected two or three times, does that also increase the chance of long COVID? And what are you hearing in terms of the situation of long COVID in Australia? Because we are now finally seeing some media reports saying that GPs are being inundated with people having post-viral syndromes and not really knowing what to do about the situation and, and the whole spectrum of symptoms that it brings up. So, you know, long COVID is the inconvenient truth for people who want to change any focus from transmission of COVID. Because as you said, if you have widespread COVID, it means you're going to have higher rates of long COVID than you need to have. And uh, I think, again, similar to to kind of the serious illness and death from COVID, Australia has largely fortunately been spared long COVID because we haven't had a lot of transmission prior to 2022. And so now, now you're seeing it. So post-viral syndromes, they have occurred in the past. They're, they're, they do occur with things like the flu, but it just seems the, the proportion of people who suffer from long COVID, um, it's more than post-viral symptoms from many other diseases. Uh, and it's something that is real, but because we've had, we haven't had so much COVID in Australia till now, it's not been as widely acknowledged or recognized, but we are only going to see more of it. Uh, I think we are just developing an understanding of long COVID after repeated infections. Uh, you, your risk of long COVID and your risk of dying of long COVID is less uh, if you've been vaccinated, but vaccinate, vaccinations don't eliminate it entirely. And we know that long COVID, most people don't get it, but it is quite common. People will have lasting symptoms of COVID, but it will have an impact on them for a prolonged period of time. It's something that we know it's difficult to, to treat because many of the symptoms have no easy treatment. And that's been 
really challenging word worldwide. It was challenging in terms of even recognizing the diagnosis. It was denied uh, by a lot of you know physicians for a long period of time. And it was actually survivors of COVID that forced this to be recognized. And now clearly it is recognized and accepted. You know, many countries have set up clinics for long COVID and now South Australia has set up clinics for long COVID. Uh, certainly I think Things like that need to happen because we have so many people who are going to be presenting with long-term symptoms related to the disease. And uh, we definitely need to improve the resources and education for GPs. So, you know, long COVID clinics would, should be for the people with most severe long COVID, but many people will have mild long COVID. And so we need to increase the capacity and resources of our general practitioners to actually be able to manage it well. So we will be seeing more and more of this in Australia. And I, honestly, I think that that's what's going to turn the tide in terms of things like mask wearing and uh, our tolerance of, of transmission uh, and turn the tide in terms of society wanting to do more. I think we are going to see more and more, you know, say, in schools, star athletes that suddenly have their athletic career completely disrupted because they're unable to do their usual activities uh, because they have long COVID. We're going to see more working adults and know of more working adults who've had to take prolonged time off work because they just haven't been able to get back to work because of long COVID. We're going to see the social and economic impacts of long COVID. I wish it would happen before, but I think that is when the tide is going to turn in terms of us as a society deciding that COVID is remaining. It continues to be a public health problem that we need a response to. We can live with COVID by ignoring it, but we will not live well with COVID if we ignore it. We need to adapt to it and we need to do more than nothing to manage transmission. I couldn't agree more, Nancy. And we haven't touched much on clean air and ventilation and air purifiers, but I know that's another part of the vaccines plus mitigation picture, which is quite easy to implement. I really appreciate your time today. I know you've got to run off. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to take us through these key issues. It's been um, you know, very clarifying and uh, great to hear the evidence behind what we're hearing. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and you know, what I, I want to um, kind of emphasize to listeners is that, you know, we don't need to be perfect. And our, the things that we put in place to help control uh, our spread of COVID, it do, they don't need to be perfect to have an impact. So when people say, oh, you, you know, if you don't wear masks 100% of the time, it's not worth it, or if masks aren't 100% effective, or, you know, if ventilation isn't 100% effective, you know, making sure you have clean air indoors isn't worth it, you know, if we reduce COVID by, you know, 10%, that's one in 10 people who don't get COVID. That's one in 10 people that don't die of COVID. That's one in 10 people who don't get hospitalized from COVID. And that's one in 10 people that don't get long COVID. And one in 10 is a significant number of people. So I think even small things that we do that reduce our chance of getting COVID or our chance of transmitting COVID, if we all did them, it would have a significant and meaningful impact that would have a meaningful impact on people's lives. So, you know, what I want to encourage people who are listening is not to get discouraged. Things are improving overall in terms of us having a vaccinated population. We have protected ourselves through everything that Australians have done, but it, the pandemic is not over and doing what we can to try and control transmission will make a difference. And, and you know, don't listen to the people talking about the fact that, that we can just get back to living as normal. If we do, we just won't live well. Very well said, Nancy. And um, thanks for your time today.
I've been speaking with Professor Nancy Baxter. She's an epidemiologist and she's also the head of the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. And we've just been discussing COVID-19 flu and uh, the very vital importance of mitigating and minimising transmission. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.